Hi, I'm Dan Lukasik with LawyersWithDepression.com. Today's guest is Dr. Alex Korb. Dr. Korb is a neuroscientist, writer, and coach. He studied the brain for over 15 years, attending Brown University as an undergraduate, and later earning his PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. Uh, he has over a dozen peer-reviewed journal articles on depression and is also the author of the book, The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. Interestingly, he's also coached the UCLA Women's Ultimate Frisbee Team for 12 seasons and is a three-time award winner for USA Ultimate Coach of the Year. His expertise extends into leadership and motivation, mindfulness, physical fitness, and even stand-up comedy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Korb. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, thank you. Well, let's um, let's begin. I think for for our audience, uh, you're a neuroscientist. Uh, what is neuroscience? Uh, neuroscience is simply the study of the brain and nervous system. It's a branch of biology, but it also incorporates aspects of psychology and psychiatry and neurobiology. So it's it's basically the anything that's going on in the brain or nervous system falls under the purview of neuroscience. And you've actually studied uh, depression in neuroscience. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And the the aspect of neuroscience that I'm most interested in is what underlies the the neural basis for our moods and emotions and behaviors and, and psychiatric illnesses. Some of those peer-reviewed articles that you mentioned uh, delve into look at schizophrenia as well as other psychiatric disorders like depression, which are, have a lot of basis in neuroscience, and we just don't fully understand what exactly is happening in the brain. Based on your, you know, what you've your research and what you've studied and what you've seen, can you tell us all what's going on in the brain when someone's suffering with depression? Yeah, the the best way to describe it is a dysfunction in frontal limbic communication, uh, and that's obviously there's that's a complicated phrase, but to simplify it. It just means that there's a problem with the way the thinking and feeling and action circuits in the brain are communicating with each other. And those all have different regions of the brain that are more dedicated to each aspect of the, of thoughts, feelings, and actions. But, and there's, normally there's a, a dynamic interplay of how these these regions are supposed to communicate with each other, and there's just something in depression that's a little bit off. Hmm. Can the same be said for anxiety as far as what's going on in the brain? Yeah. Anxiety anxiety and depression have a lot of overlap in terms of the, the neuroscience and the neurobiology behind them. A lot of the same brain regions are involved. For example, the amygdala, which is often called the fear center of the brain, uh, but really is involved in in a lot of emotional expression. That's the that's one of the core emotion regions in the brain, and it it plays a role in both depression and anxiety. And 
there's just there's just a lot of overlap in the brain regions and neurochemistry that underlie these disorders, and it's one of the reasons why anxiety is actually one of the most common features of depression, and they they often co-occur together. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and uh, this is a, a common experience of many people I know with depression, and myself included, is when I tried to explain to people uh, what I was suffering from, my symptoms, and I called it depression, most people really didn't have any frame of reference for that. Uh, they usually mm-hmm. thought of it as sadness. Are with respect to sadness and depression, are there different areas of the brain uh, which pertain to sadness that are different than clinical depression? Well, there's a lot of overlap between sadness and depression, but a lot of the misunderstanding that people have is just we, we use the term depression and sadness or I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling sad. We use those colloquially uh, very interchangeably, but medically uh, or neuroscientifically, they're very different. And depression, the, the diagnosis of depression is a lot more than simple sadness. And in fact, a lot of times people who suffer from depression don't actually feel sad per se. They can often feel an emptiness where emotion should be. And they have a lot of other symptoms such as hopelessness and feelings of helplessness and guilt and shame and isolation. Anxiety can be a part of it. Uh, They can have fatigue. They can have problems falling asleep or staying asleep or even sleeping too much. And and generally the, the things that they used to find enjoyable are no longer enjoyable. And everything often just feels very difficult. And it's hard to explain to someone else why it feels difficult because it seems like it shouldn't be. So it's it's much it's a much deeper uh, feeling of of being stuck than most people uh, than most people experience, and I, I think the average person, if you can think of how you felt, maybe for the week after your greatest heartbreak, that sort of touches on the edge of what it means to feel depressed, because it's really it's not even the depth of how badly you feel. It's that you can't escape it. Uh, So, for example, I I like to think of depression as like a traffic jam. And when you enter a traffic jam, sometimes there's there's an accident or something. You you see the cars are stopped and you sit there and wait and you don't know how long of a traffic jam it's going to be. For most people, it's, oh, it's just a... It was just uh, a little stoppage and they're on their way. But for people with depression, it's something that their brain just can't quite escape. And they can try and try, but their brain is stuck in this pattern of activity and reactivity that just drags along and the traffic jam just just continues. That's a great explanation of... uh 
the experience of depression, uh, both what's going on in the brain and psychologically. And I think people want to know um, what are some of the causes of depression? Uh, many people, I guess, once they've been diagnosed, often try to figure out for themselves and people who care about them try to figure out, you know, how did this all happen? What causes depression? Yeah. Yeah. Well, depression can have a huge number of different causes. And this is where the, the traffic jam analogy plays, uh, it does, does a lot for understanding depression because if you see a traffic jam, you can say, oh, well, what, what caused it? Well, a traffic jam can come from any number of causes. It could be there's construction on the freeway or there was an accident or there was heavy rain or fog or it could just be that everyone decided to leave work at the same time and there's no specific quote-unquote cause. It's just that there's too many cars on the road and the, the interaction, the dynamic interaction of all those cars just reached a tipping point. And with depression, it's the same way. Oftentimes, it can be precipitated by a big life event, such as um, a divorce or breakup or death in the family, uh, or smaller life events, such as a perceived emotional embarrassment or you didn't get that promotion. Uh, but oftentimes, it's not, quote-unquote, caused by anything. It's just this dynamic interaction of your different brain circuits with each other combined with your the sum of your current life circumstances that just causes the brain to get stuck in this certain pattern of activity and reactivity. And, and that's much more likely to happen for some people than others because some people's brains uh, are just more at risk for falling into that pattern, and that can be based on the genetics, the genes that you got from your parents and your early childhood experiences and the, the coping habits that you've been doing your whole life that have really shaped the neural circuitry and neurochemistry of your particular brain. So it's, it's not always a specifically identifiable cause. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why people sometimes don't quite believe that it's real or they don't think that they should be suffering it. But it's, it's very similar in that, in that traffic can sometimes just sort of happen for seemingly no reason. It's, it's just caused by the, the fact that it's a uh, nonlinear dynamic system. And why did you write the book, uh, The Upward Spiral? You know, I'm always curious uh, as to why people write books. I mean, there are plenty of scientists out there uh, who study depression, but not all of them or maybe few of them write a book uh, for the general public on the topic. So what was it that led you or uh, motivated you to write this kind of book? Uh, well, I, I just realized that there was so much 
useful neuroscience out there that just wasn't being effectively to the people who needed it most. And one of the things that made me realize that, or the major event that made me realize that is from when I was coaching Ultimate Frisbee. And after a few months, one of the one of the girls on the team revealed to me that she had been suffering from major depression and that she'd been suffering for for years and tragically she uh many months later she ended up committing suicide mm-hmm. and it was a devastating event in my life and this was back when I was still studying neuroscience but before I had decided to go to grad school and, and study depression. And that event led me to to try and want to understand what exactly was going on in her brain that could lead her to do something like that. How How could the brain get stuck in a disease like this? And that led me to uh, doing going to grad school and, and doing my dissertation on depression to try and understand and share some of these things with other people. And as I was doing my dissertation, I realized, yes, it's good to advance the science, but there was already so much good science out there that was so beneficial. And I I didn't think that anyone was doing a good enough job communicating clearly about what exactly was happening in the brain in depression and about all the dozens of little different life changes that you can make that have measurable effects on brain activity and brain chemistry in all these important regions in the neuroscience of depression. Well, you know, uh, the second part of your book is devoted to eight specific things you can do uh, to mm-hmm. alleviate your depression. And real quickly there, exercise your brain, set goals and make decisions, give your brain a rest, develop positive habits, biofeedback, uh, develop or tap into the gratitude circuit, the power of others, and your brain in therapy. And we don't have mm-hmm. time to cover all eight, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I will, why don't we focus in on one or two? And I, what I thought fascinating was you actually give uh, the backdrop or what's going on behind the curtain when you do these things, mm-hmm. what's going on in the brain. So I thought mm-hmm. we could um, focus a, a couple things that uh, really popped into my mind or that drew my attention uh, was gratitude and mm-hmm. your brain in therapy. So what about gratitude and you know how can it help depression? Yeah, well, gratitude has can have a lot of powerful effects on the brain. And one of the reasons, going back to why I wrote this book, is that there are tons of books out there that will tell you different life changes that you can make that will help with depression. But I've found that a lot of them are unsatisfying because they don't really explain why. And therefore, 
it's not as convincing and sometimes it's very easy for people to dismiss. And so when I talk about gratitude and how practicing gratitude can be so powerful in, in overcoming depression, a lot of people can resist that idea because it sounds sort of hokey. But if I can point to specific neuroscience studies that show that it has measurable effects in changing brain activity and brain chemistry, then you're much more likely to do it and um, it at least gives you a, a greater understanding of what's going on. So gratitude has been shown to, if you, people keep a gratitude journal, it can actually improve the quality of their sleep. And sleep problems are one of the symptoms of depression and also one of the causes of depression. The, the reason why I called my book The Upward Spiral is because depression can sort of be seen as this downward spiral where one symptom or one event can lead to seemingly a whole cascade of other events that keep you stuck. And so gratitude can help break the downward spiral that's coming from sleep problems that are leading to uh, difficulty in concentration, and that's one place to break the loop. It well, also, know, I, yeah. I just wanted to break in for a quick second because after yeah. reading the chapter on gratitude, I myself picked up a spiral notebook uh, actually this morning and made out a gratitude list. And it was more of a lifetime gratitude list. And mm-hmm. it's amazing. I came up with maybe, uh, you know, 80 things and uh, I was surprised and uh, you know so often my experience with depression has been we ruminate about negative things and we don't just do not take the time or don't have the skill and it's a skill we need to develop to savor and reflect on the good things in our lives and it seems to be what you're saying and that has effects in the brain yeah the yeah no depression is when you're in the depressed state, it's much harder to see the positive aspects of your life. But that's why it's all the more important to build a habit of looking for those positive things because oftentimes the most important feature of gratitude is not finding something to be grateful for. It's remembering to look in the first place because that activates the prefrontal cortex, which is the sort of more thinking part of the brain that helps it regulate the emotional regions of the brain that are going haywire in depression. And, and gratitude actually helps. There have been fMRI studies that shown gratitude increases activity in this key region of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex that sits at the intersection between the emotional limbic system and the more rational prefrontal cortex and helps modulate communication between those. And remembering things in your past that you're, that you're happy for, grateful for, actually increases the production of the neurotransmitter serotonin in that same brain region. And serotonin is one of the targets of uh, the most common target for antidepressant medications. So the practicing gratitude is having important effects in key brain regions that we know 
contribute to depression and in the neurotransmitter systems that are contributing to depression. I also thought that your chapter on uh, our brains in therapy, I mean, what's interesting mm-hmm. about it is I think that, uh, you know, many people who treat with therapists find comfort and solace in, uh, in going to therapy uh, when they're struggling mm-hmm. with depression. They walk out and they do feel better oftentimes and they might not understand why uh, they feel better. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I think statistically we we know, I, I think there's a recent statistic from the National Institute of Mental Health that as many as 80% of people in our country get no treatment for depression, whether it be Mm -hmm. antidepressants, uh, uh, therapy, nothing. So Mm -hmm. why is it important, if at all, uh, for people to go to therapy or treat with a therapist who struggle with depression? Well, the, the chapter that I wrote on therapy really encompasses not just psychotherapy, going to talk to someone, but it also includes medical therapy such as antidepressant medications or other forms of of therapy like neuromodulation techniques. And these have been demonstrated through rigorous double-blind, usually scientific studies that have showed they have a powerful effect on treating depression. So going to see a professional if you think you are depressed is the is a hugely important step because they can uh put at your disposal all of the advances of of western medicine and what's interesting is i um it's one of the last chapters in the book and it's funny how many comments i get on that because some people will say to me you know, you left antidepressants to the end because they're not that important and you have all these other life changes that people can do. And other psychiatrists will often kind of say to me, like, why are you so dismissive of antidepressant medications? I mean, they're they're hugely important in, in the treatment of depression. And it's actually neither of those. I, I agree that antidepressants and psychotherapy are extremely important in the treatment of depression. And if you think you might be suffering from depression, then you should absolutely go see a uh, health professional, whether it's just your doctor or going to see a psychotherapist. It's just that I don't think antidepressants are the entire answer. For some people, I'd say about a third of people suffering from depression, antidepressants are the answer. They, you can get over your depression completely simply by taking a pill. And we don't, you don't know if you might be one of those people. So you might well, as well go see a doctor and find out. For the, the other half or two thirds of people, antidepressant medication can often be a huge part of the answer, even if it's not the entire answer. And Making taking antidepressants can often help you make these other small life changes, such as increasing exercise or changing your sleep habits or practicing gratitude. And as you make those other small life changes, then things can start to spiral upwards. Well, it's 
been an informative and very interesting uh, interview with you, Dr. Korb. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show, and I highly recommend our listeners to pick up and read his book, The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression One Small Change at a Time. Join us next week for another interesting interview at warriorswithdepression.com.